0: Proverbs. It's about wisdom, skills in living life, and, and wisdom's available. It's calling. Uh, the question is, is anybody, is anybody listening? Hey, I want to show you something. Look at this. I'm hitting myself in the head. See this? I could do this all I want. It's a free country. I can continue to do this until the Lord's return. You're sitting there. You're wondering, why are you doing that? That's a foolish thing to do. It's probably hurting your head. You would be right. You might eventually even get to the point where you would say, Stuart, what's up with that? Why are you doing that? And I might just ignore you. You can shout out all you want. I just may keep hitting myself in the head. And you're wondering. Yeah, I'll tell you what you're wondering. You're wondering how long is that guy going to do that? Well, you know, that is uh, uh, almost exactly the scenario in our text tonight. Take a look. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22. I'll show it to you. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22. There the writer, Solomon, says, how long? Same question. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. He's addressing three categories of people engaged in behaviors as foolish as the one I just demonstrated to you. They're living life absolutely foolishly. Solomon is taking note of this and wondering how long will you persist in living lives that are so ungodly, so unwise, and so foolish. And he asked that question, uh, a notice of three types of people. Naive ones, scoffers, and fools. They're similar in the sense that they're obstinate. They don't listen to the voice of wisdom, but they're different. Naive ones, they are gullible people. Scoffers are arrogant people, and, uh, and fools are immoral people. Uh, when the Bible speaks of fools, it's not an IQ deficit. It's a moral deficit. These are folks who are just doing their own thing if it feels good. They're just doing it regardless of uh, the morals or ethics involved. So so Solomon is crying out uh, to these three groups. How long are you going to do that? And I, I'd like to demonstrate or illustrate to you um, the differences between these three groups of people. Here's an article I read the other day that exemplifies this. Here's the uh, title. Listen to this article. Atheist Church Mocks Christianity by Worshiping... Bacon attracts members with free weddings. I did not make this up. This church has been granted tax-exempt status. They mockingly and facetiously say, direct quote, bacon is real. See, the implication is God is not. But bacon is real, therefore it is our God. Praise bacon. That's what it says. Now, I'm not lying. Now, the organization is named the United Church of Bacon. It was started in 2010 in Las Vegas. And they're growing by offering free weddings to anyone who wishes to apply. In fact, according to their website, as a result of the offer of free weddings, their membership has tripled. It's now up to 12,000 new, they call them converts, 12,000. Now, I offer this to you because you can see the distinction between these three groups Solomon addresses. The naive are those who simply apply. They don't know what they're getting into. They just found out it's a free wedding. They're gullible. They're susceptible. I'm going to join the church. Sure, who cares what it's all about? I get a free wedding. But the scoffers and the fools, those are the ones who set this up in defiance and mockery of Almighty God. Can you see this? So there's a measure of deliberate defiance on the part of scoffers and fools, and there's just a measure of foolishness, susceptibility, and gullibility on the part of the naive. But Solomon says, I don't care. Wisdom, lady wisdom. Remember, we talked about wisdom is personified here as a woman. Lady wisdom, lady wisdom is willing to cry out to all people, even the most defiant. Stop doing this. Why are you doing this? Why are you living your hard-headed, hard-hearted life in defiance of Almighty God? How long, Lady Wisdom cries out right in the streets where all people could hear, how long will you keep on doing your thing and leaving God out? How long before you realize it's destroying you? How long before you see that your quest for independence from God is hurting you? and all those around you. Folks, you would think we people would have enough evidence of what it's like to remove God from the equation of life. How are we doing in the world? Are you kidding me? On every front, we're in big trouble. I think irreversible trouble, economically, educationally, politically. I mean, morally, are you kidding me? On every, you would think we have enough evidence to persuade us that our experiment of removing God from the formula of life has not borne fruit. You would think we would stop doing this, repent, and listen to Lady Wisdom. And yet we persist in our quest for independence. It's something in us. Everyone here has something in common. We crave autonomy. We don't want to be dependent on God. Let's face it. You know what happens if you're dependent on God? It slows you down. Instead of doing that what you want to do, you have to slow down and ask the question, what would God have me do? And you don't want to do it, and neither do I. If it feels good, I want to do it. I don't want to have to submit my potential decision to the scrutiny of anyone, including Almighty God. I crave independence from God. And I don't want to wait on God to deliver the goods. If I can gratify my own flesh immediately, why in the world should I delay gratification and wait for God to meet my needs? So it's a disease we all have. It's inborn. You don't have to be taught it. It's inherent in us. It's a quest for independence from Almighty God. And we've done a pretty good job at succeeding at it. We've done a great job of losing God. We are a nation of practical atheists. Many will say, of course, I believe in God. But in the way lives are lived out, in practice, might as well admit you're an atheist. We have removed God from the equation of life. Now, here's what happens. In the process of losing sight of God, in the process, we've lost our souls. We've lost our value. We've lost our purpose. And without a God-given sense of purpose, we have nothing else to invest in but ourself. <laughs> and that's what we do. We're on a quest to seek pleasure and avoid pain. And that becomes the purpose of our life. It's nothing greater than that. It's an intense, logical, self Centeredness. For if there is no God, there is no eternity. And if there is no God and no eternity and no purpose, the best I can squeeze out of this horrific life is pleasure. And that's what's happening in our society. And the person writing this for us, Solomon, is writing from personal experience for crying out loud. He succeeded in removing God from the equation of his life. And as a result, he had no purpose and no meaning. And therefore, he put himself on a desperate quest to find purpose and satisfaction in life. He was trying to fill the emptiness and the void. He was wealthy. He was successful. He was a man of prominence, but he was empty. Therefore, he gave himself to absolutely unbridled pleasure-seeking. And what did he conclude about it all? He wrote it for us in Ecclesiastes. He said, I said of laughter, It's madness and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? He threw caution to the wind. He was on a desperate quest for meeting. If it felt good, Solomon said, I'm doing it. Here's an example. He said this. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine. That's what he did. I explored with my mind. How to get high? That's what he said. One of the things he did is he tried to self-medicate. That's what you do when you're empty and you don't have anything to live for. You try to diminish the pain through drugs, alcohol, other stuff. That's what he did. He tried to, he tried to anesthetize the, the intense sense of meaninglessness in life. And so he said, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine. And our Our world, it seems to me, seems to be on the same mad quest for satisfaction. And here's what happens. The absence of self-satisfaction leads to a mad quest for self-gratification. Without self-satisfaction, you're given to the quest for self-gratification. And that's what's happening in our country and around the world. And Solomon said of this, it's an exercise in madness and futility. And here's why. The pursuit of unbridled fleshly pleasure is futility because the enjoyment of the pleasure diminishes. That's the deal. So what worked for you, for someone at the beginning, ceases to work. And what gave you pleasure no longer does. Therefore, the pleasure seeker has to keep increasing the intake of pleasure in order to experience the degree of pleasure he or she did at the beginning. And this makes the pursuit of pleasure uh, an exercise in futility because the pleasure has to be always intensified in order to keep experiencing the high. When that happens, it absolutely takes over. You begin by controlling it, but now it controls you. You're a full-blown addict. Whatever it is. Compulsive overeating, compulsive shopping, pornography, booze, drugs. Whatever it is. Whatever. Whatever it is whatever it is. You think you're regulating it, but then you lose the capacity to regulate it. It takes control of you. And when the full-blown addiction sets in, it usually leads to the demise of all relationships. So the addicted pleasure seeker is now living a solitary existence. He has lost his family. She has lost her family relationships. That person becomes intensely isolated He's found no meaning in life, his life is crumbling, he's dying, he's not living. And Lady Wisdom cries out, how long will you give up a hold on your own life and let God take control? When the party is over, all that's left is emptiness. The unbridled pursuit of pleasure is an exercise in futility. Solomon said it's like chasing the wind. Think about the metaphor. The wind can be so strong, you think it's concrete, but when you come up to it and try to grab onto it, you try to connect, you use it as a mooring point, it vanishes. That's what Solomon says. All these things look like they're real substitute gods, but they're no more a god than bacon. It's like chasing it's like chasing the wind. And so Lady Wisdom cries out because she hates the fact that people are on the road to destruction. And so she says what she does in verse 23, turn to my reproof, behold, I'll pour out my spirit on you that I'll make my words known to you. That's what's offered to those who listen to the voice of wisdom. The voice of wisdom offers change and transformation offers renewal and relationship. Have you experienced it? I have. But who turns to reproof? You know what we usually turn to? Praise and confirmation. We usually hang out with people who pat us on the back, even when we're on the road to destruction. How in the world? It's unnatural for us to turn to reproof, God's or anyone else's. How in the world, therefore, are we going to turn to God's reproof? I don't know how, but you did. I did. (laughs) Circumstances get us there. For me, it was coming to the end of self. For me, it was the point of suicide. For me, it was, um, it was a drugged, drunken addiction that I couldn't shake. For me, it was intense emptiness and no longer a desire to live. What was it for you? I don't, I don't I'm not sh- I mean, it took something, right, uh, 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 to get me to turn to God's reproof. What did it take for you? But here's the point. There's a whole world of people out there who are not beyond being turned by God's grace to his reproof. We should pray for them. Do you know anyone like that? Do you have family members like that? So I want to tell you something. The worst thing in the world for you is to have loved ones and friends who you don't have any reason to believe have ever heard about Jesus Christ. That's the worst thing. So I have two sisters, and one died a couple weeks ago. And thanks, Sagemont Church, for the unbelievable expression of condolence. I mean unbelievable. Stacks of cards and texts and messages and verbalizations of condolence and I carried as much as I could to my 99 year old mother. It's not meant that a parent should be preceded in death by a child, but sometimes that's the way it is. She was overwhelmed and greatly comforted by what Sagemont Church uh, has done. So uh, I had the privilege of praying with my sister years ago to accept the Lord Jesus, but I saw no fruit. In all the years. But in the last months of her life, her physical afflictions began to turn her to the reproof of Almighty God. And my hardened sister, very hard. I shared this in our Bible study Sunday. A a very hardened uh, street person from New York. uh, Not gentle uh, at all. Just tough. But was different. All that toughness gave way to gentleness, concern, concern. And she would talk to me about the Lord Jesus on her initia- initiative openly. And she would ask me, can you send me things? Can you- it's hard for me to read. I got her a Bible. It's hard for me to read it. My eyes don't focus. I, I can't. Can you send something shorter? What am I going to send to my sister that she could read that's large enough print? So I decide I know a letter because I can make it a big font. I, can- I could send a two-page letter, something like that. I don't know. Maybe she'll read it. So I sent one. Here it is. I'd like to read it to you. Dear Shelley. that's her name. You've gone through a lot. I'm praying for you often. I wish I had the power to make things different for you. Life has been so hard for you. But I'm so limited in helping you. This makes me turn to God for his help. He is unlimited and he stands by willing to help you. In fact, he very much desires to help us find our way to him. We've lost our way. We've gone our own way as if the God who made us is not there. This quest to be independent, to do our own thing, to take care of ourselves has left us lost and empty. My heart's desire, because you are my sister and I love you, is for you to find your way to God. Your sin, my sin, has separated us from him. But because he is ready to forgive... He has made a way for all our sins and wrongdoing to be forgiven. God's Son, Jesus, paid it all. In his suffering and dying, he provided payment for the debt we owe God and could not pay. Jesus paid it all. And then after dying, there was his rising up from death so that he can be alive to us and for us forever. It is no surprise to you that the number one thing I'm praying for you is that you turn to Jesus as your personal Savior. Ask him to forgive your sin. To come into your life and to be with you forever you have so many physical challenges I pray for you in this regard however the greatest need we all have is not for physical well-being it's for spiritual well-being though your body is subject to so many afflictions it is your soul that is truly hurting I am therefore praying for your spiritual well-being I'm praying for your soul I know God stands by ready to come into your life to forgive your sins and to be your Lord and Savior forever. I know this because he has done this very thing for me and is ready to come into your life as well. In fact, here are his words about this. Please listen to them. And I shared John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. So I invite you, my dear sister, to confess to God your sins and separation from him and then accept his forgiveness based on what Christ has done for you in dying for your sins and then ask him to live in you and grant you peace. Here is a sample prayer you can privately pray. God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve the consequences of my sin. However, I am trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I believe that his death and resurrection provided for my forgiveness. I trust in Jesus and Jesus alone as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord, for saving me and forgiving me. Amen. Let me know, Shelley, if you've prayed this prayer. It isn't the prayer that can bring you into a right relationship with God. It's your heart. Please open your heart to him. His heart is open to you. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I love you, Shelly, and so does God, your brother, Stuart. Um, I sent it to her. Uh, thank you. Um, I didn't know what her response. She called me. It was quite difficult. Two days later, I got your letter. She was crying. I don't know what to say. She said, uh, I'm getting there. I'm moving in that direction. I'm not there yet. I wish I could tell you I knew where my sister was today. I don't. You should never leave a loved one with that question. Where is my deceased loved one? Don't do it. Let them know where to find you. I don't know that for sure about my sister, but here's the comfort I have. She full well heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to suggest to you a letter-writing campaign. It just occurred to me that letters are a good way to communicate the gospel, sometimes the best way, because if you're sharing with a loved one the gospel message face-to-face, it may be too intimidating for you. They may be too defensive. A letter removes the necessity for them to defend. They can just think. And then you don't have to be the boldest witness in the history of the world. You send a letter and you put a stamp on it. Is that a cop-out? Not unless the New Testament letters are written by cop-outs. It just occurred to me the bulk of the New Testament consists of letters. I want to encourage you to form a letter. Don't put 15 verses of Scripture in it. One, two, share your heart. Make it standard. Make copies. Send it to every relative you know. Change it, maybe, and send a standardized letter to every friend you know. And then if something happens to one of those, suddenly it could be. At least your grieving will be tempted, will be tempered by the knowledge of the fact, but I told them, but I gave them an opportunity, but I became the voice of Lady Wisdom, calling out to them lovingly. What they did with it, how they responded is out of my hands. I can't move someone to God's reproof. I can't do that. I can just warn them about it. I I beseech you, start a letter writing campaign. You write the first one, don't send it. Rip it up. Write it again. Edit it. Change it. Do spell check. Whatever it is, send it out. What do you have to lose? The essential need of our day is not going to be met in the political realm. Did you know that? The essential need of our day is not going to be met uh, by us complying with the prognostications of fanciful book writers who are warning us about atmospheric signs and who knows what. The essential need of our day is not going to be met by military prowess. The essential need of our day is to be wisdom's voices calling out to people Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That is our purpose. That is why we remain here. There is no greater calling. There is no greater need. This is very serious business. So serious, in fact, that rejecting Christ leads to this, verse 24. Because I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh. At your calamity, I will mock when your dread comes. Folks, nobody can avoid the inevitable calamity and dread, which are the natural outcomes of having killed off God, the giver of life. Yes, judgment is here and in greater measure is on the way. Verse 27, when, when, not if, when your dread comes, how, like a storm. The best of us are not so good at predicting storms, and your calamity comes as a whirlwind. The best of us, our brain trust, cannot avert the whirlwind of tornado and hurricane. Neither can we avert the storm of God's coming judgment. When this this comes, when distress and anguish come upon you, then, verse 28, they'll call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Does that sound too harsh? No. It's simply the way things work. God will give us what we demand. If we demand autonomy, independence from him, we shall have it. Those who've demanded it will be given it. And those who have done all they could to extinguish the voice of Lady Wisdom, even so far as to not only persecute, but to k- kill messengers of wisdom. We're losing brothers and sisters in our world every moment of the day. Even those who have, have, have taken the ultimate step of extinguishing the lives who have come to be bearers of good news, those folks... Many (laughs) will inherit the consequence of their choices. You may have a hard time living with uh, the wrong perception of the harshness of God, but could you or I more easily live with a God who would allow evil and evildoers to remain forever unchecked and unjudged? I could not live with a God like that, neither can you. I assure you, if you're aroused by the injustices in the world, and by the anti-Christian uh, momentum, which is picking up steam, how much more is the Christ aroused and disturbed by it? And those who would extinguish his voice will inherit the natural consequences of their choices. Look, verse 30, they would not accept my counsel. They spurned my reproof so they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. Notice, it doesn't say satisfied, it says satiated. You know what that means? Fed up. Doesn't mean satisfied, it means just means you're stuffed. With what? Your own devices. Folks who deny the verse the, the voice of wisdom will ultimately be confronted with the reality of having to live throughout eternity with their own devices, their own values, their own perceptions, their own plans, their own ways. Absolutely independent of the only God who could give life abundant, free, and eternal. For the waywardness of the naive, verse 32, will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Is God too harsh? No, 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 no. It's not God who will kill them or destroy them. The text says it's their own waywardness and complacency. That's the natural consequence of turning from the voice of wisdom. The complacent person just doesn't care. This one has absolutely no fear of judgment. This is a terrible way to be, but it need not be this way. (laughs) There is an alternative, and in closing, here it is, verse 33. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. This is the contrasting reality for those who have, by God's grace, been enabled to heed the voice of wisdom, God's voice, God's reproof, and his offer of forgiveness and reconciliation. But you may say, this idea of living securely and at ease, that doesn't really happen for Christians today. We know about ISIS and all this other kind of stuff, committing atrocities with regard to many people, including many, many Christians. And we say, how does all that square with verse 33? Uh, I found an answer, but it's not mine. It's given by a great saint of old, Charles Spurgeon you know about Charles Spurgeon. Can I just directly quote from him his response? How do we reconcile verse 33 with harsh realities facing many Christians in our day? Here's what Spurgeon said, God's people are safe. Let convulsions shake the solid earth. Let the skies themselves be rent in twain. Yet amid the wrecks of worlds, the believer shall be as secure as in the calmest hour of rest. If God does not save his people under heaven, he will save them in heaven. If the world becomes too hot to hold them, then heaven shall be the place of their reception and their safety. Be ye then confident when you hear of wars and rumors of wars. Let no agitation distress you, but be quiet from fear of evil whatsoever cometh upon the earth. You, beneath the broad wings of the Lord, shall be secure. Stay yourself upon his promise. Rest in his faithfulness and bid defiance to your blackest future, for there is nothing in it direful for you, your soul Get this, your soul, our soul concern should be to show forth to the world the blessedness of hearkening to the voice of wisdom. That's our purpose. That's our hope. To call the world to hearken to the voice of wisdom. We're immortal until the moment God says, come home. And though he may not save us from the throes of life, he will save us through it all (laughs) so as to be eternally forevermore with him. We are invincible. (laughs) We live forever in the presence of Almighty God because by his grace we've been able to heed the voice of wisdom. Folks, whatever else it is that may be occupying our time, this is our calling. To be the voice of wisdom calling to the world hearken to the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ who says come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest and Lord Jesus that's what we want to do with more enthusiasm passion and fire than ever before every crazy person in the world has a platform even the bacon church crazy foolishness, but we've been entrusted with life-changing oracles from on high, the gospel message. Oh, God, give us a holy boldness and fire to distinguish ourselves from the rest as those who bring good news. Oh, God, we pray you would direct us to those who from before time you have already been dealing with, stirring up their hearts, creating an openness for the reception of the gospel. Lord Jesus, would you make our time, our relatively short time here on earth, productive? Would you make fuller use of us, oh God? And in a world that is so distracting on every front, would you help us to set our face like flint with regard to our calling and promise? We have heard from you and been redeemed And now it is our purpose to spread the wealth, just as Rebecca is intent on doing. Oh, God, she's going to a far-off place. What about us right here? Oh, God, set us on fire so the majesty of the gospel message can lead to many, many more transformed lives. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.